0: Welcome to the Slava Connection. I am joined today by Zach Johnson. This is our first episode together. How are you, Zach?
1: Hey, Lauren. I'm back from my first post-pandemic vacation, Belize. It's a beautiful country, incredible people. I'm a tad sunburned, so actually happy to be back in the apartment for the first time in about 18 months, so it's good to be back. The
0: tan is working out wonderfully for you, unlike some of us like me who never sees sun ever. So, Zach, today we got to chat with Dr. Dina Feinberg. She's a lecturer in modern history and she's the director of the History BA program at Sydney University of London. What did we talk about today?
1: So, you know, the heart of our interview was really about Cold War correspondence. Her incredible new book that touches on, you know, how foreign correspondence of the Soviet side and the American side shape their respective citizens' view of one another during the tumultuous Cold War period.
2: And, and again, this happens on both sides, that the press is not only going in this direction of building bridges and realizing shared concerns, but it's actually kind of augmenting the problem it
1: makes. We touched on the state of modern U.S.-Russian media relations, modern coverage, what can be improved, how we can get back to more possibly citizen-to-citizen-type reporting and more organic connections, um, you know, even outside of the media space.
0: It was an absolute privilege to get to chat with Dina today. So take a listen. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dina, thank you so much for joining us today on The Slavic Connection. We discussed this a little bit off mic, but we hear that you're calling in actually from across the pond.
2: Thank you so much for having me. And I do. I'm calling from London the United Kingdom.
0: So you are actually currently a lecturer in modern history and the director of the History BA program at City University of London. A lot of your research has been in US-Russia relations, Soviet media propaganda, Cold War culture. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, your origin story? What got you interested in these topics?
2: I guess. So when I when I was an um, undergraduate student, I wanted to go into grad school, I couldn't decide if I wanted to study Russia or US history. So I figured I'll do both. And the Cold War was like the natural choice, right? Because that's the time when they kind of were pitted really against each other. I'm also very interested as a person, I guess, and as a scholar in how people imagine themselves and imagine the world around them. And so again, the Cold War and kind of Russia and America, where was this area where I could think about these things and, uh, and reflect on them and do something about them. The particular project started with a paper assignment in the first year of graduate school at Rutgers, and it was uh, the history of U.S. news media. And my PhD advisor, David Ferguson, recommended that I look at books written by American journalists who traveled to the Soviet Union. So I did, and I was really surprised to read these accounts. Not sure what I was even really surprised about. But they didn't read as like a dispassionate, objective media reporting. So there were a lot of, they were very personal. They had many like really interesting and astute observations, but it also like got many things wrong and had this like very particular view of Russia, kind of essentializing borderline racist, if you will. So it was a very interesting experience. And then I went and uh, did some more research and realized that Soviet journalists were also writing books like this. So the Soviet correspondents were also traveling to the United States and also writing these books. And it really interested me that in these two very different uh, media cultures and political systems and ideological systems, there's effectively this one group of people, the same group of people who are professional journalists, who are then in charge of going to the other side of the Iron Curtain and telling the readers at home about, you know, the enemy overseas, what is it like? etc. etc. What was also really interesting and very striking is to what extent these books were not just about people on the other side, but also about journalists' view of their own cultures. And so they reflected on themselves and their own societies, both implicitly and explicitly. And it was like very clear that the readers of these books were also invited to do the same thing. Or invited to as they were reading about the other they were invited to think about who they are and where they come from
1: thank you so much again for being here Dina it's an absolute pleasure i'm sure uh, you know hosts are, are prone to flattery but you know i thoroughly enjoyed your book you know I, I got through it much quicker than I expected it was just a really insightful look at, at how this reporting really helped shape these rival Cold War ideologies. And so just, you know, jumping right into your book, I'm curious, it seems typically, you know, gentlemen like Kondrashov and, and and reporters from the Soviet side that tended to be more reflective in their experience, where the American correspondents almost wanted to impart kind of this American ideology of the objective journalists uh, upon to their their readers and upon to, you know, People who there, they were around on a daily basis. Is there kind of a general consensus that that was the case in comparing the different correspondents?
2: This is a fantastic question and, and a great observation. I think that it has to do a lot with the two journalistic cultures that the book kind of tries to tackle. Soviet journalistic culture was all about using propaganda as a vehicle of enlightenment, using propaganda uh, to make to help people become better socialists. Soviet journalism really, so just imagine themselves like Soviet writers as engineers of human souls, so to speak. And so in Soviet journalism, you could do this. It was acceptable, conventional, and encouraged to, to use this kind of literary style. To have these kind of contemplative passages, to reflect on your own experiences, to reflect and kind of imagine and um, stipulate what might go through your subject's heads, to kind of imagine particular sites and to bring like so much of this into the account itself and so much of the journalist's own persona as an acting subject, as a narrator, as a voice. And that was, again, central to Soviet journalism as a whole. In the United States, as we well know, journalistic objectivity is very central to the ethics of American journalism, and that has to do with American journalism's role in the democratic process of holding officials accountable, of kind of providing, you know, verifiable information that's going to inform democratic decision-making, etc. And to fulfill that role, American journalism relies on these practices that we kind of associate with journalistic objectivity, that is very, kind of say that something is a fact only when it's verifiable, and critically to separate factual reporting from interpretation. It, of course, does not work in reality in that way, but the ideal is there. And that ideal reformed the reporting of American correspondents, yet which, you're right, did bring themselves slightly less into the reporting. If they did, it wasn't through these like reflexive moment about us and them. It was more about experiences. So a lot of reporting, especially in the early years of the Cold War, is about the experiences of foreigners in Moscow. Like I went to the market and this is what I saw. Therefore, I tell you that Soviet economy is in crisis. So in kind of in, in this way. So these were different ways of bringing themselves in a different modes of engagement.
1: It was kind of interesting because, you know, Americans would come over and they'd love to impart this idea of the objective journalist. But then, you know, in in your book, you you point out how they were too humanizing in their accounts of the Soviet citizenry. They'd return home and they'd actually have to write kind of afterwards or long pieces kind of explaining or, you know, actually justifying their pieces to fit kind of this American ideology. So... Yeah, it becomes so obscure when they're they're talking about, you know, objectivity, but yet they'd have to return home and kind of <laughs> explain to their audiences and fit it into this kind of anti-Soviet, you know, Cold War rhetoric and, and ideology. And I just found that fascinating as well.
2: Thank you. Um, they did so very kind of consciously, even at the time, kind of, you know, choosing oh, I'm, that topic I'm going to write about in a particular way, concerned that they would... Attract the wrath of uh, readers and editors, and um, people won't be, will be not happy about their reporting. To me, I think one of the most interesting things that I got from working on this project was like this very wholesome realization that news are made by people and by multiple people, and that down to the very individual item that we see on, you know, a newspaper page or nowadays on an internet website, behind that, there are so many people. And so many different types of interventions and conversations and negotiations and engagement. And in the case of foreign correspondence, a whole bunch of different actors participate in shaping these items and, in one way or the other, inform what would be then published on the printed page. And I think this just seeing this process like in its very granular details was exceptionally interesting, but also super important. For me, as a person who lives in an information society, to understand how news I make. And I think it's a very important realization for us, kind of because we are surrounded by information more and more and more and more.
0: That was also something I, I really appreciated about your book is, you know, putting a human face to all of these you know, stories about journalism and what was happening over there. You you mentioned uh, this reporter, Harrison Salisbury, who was covering the Soviet Union for The New York Times, and Ivan Biglov, who wrote on the U.S. for the Telegraph Agency of the Soviet Union. And I, I found, you know, the, hearing about their stories really fascinating. What What was it about, you know, these two that stood out to you?
2: I think the whole project was one of the things I was really into is to understand what it was like to live in the Cold War, Not, you know, far away, but to live in the Cold War, to be part where the Cold War becomes kind of entangled into your private and professional life. And they were just really engaging and compelling characters that worked on the other side in that period that is super, super tense that everybody feels on a knife's edge or to quote Salisbury's uh, words, a siege behind enemy lines. So this is the high Cold War. People are genuinely hostile. They genuinely feel kind of completely, you know, straddled far apart. It was interesting, both, this is not in the book, but both Salisbury and Big Love spend these years kind of lobbying to go home. saying, I really need to get a vacation. I'm, this is, this is, has taken a toll on me. I'm really, really tired. And for various reasons, kind of their requests are not granted, and, but also that they're both in very different ways, aware, thoughtful, and engaged, and kind of brought this contemplative observation ethos into their reporting and, and in their work, and, and so engaged kind of with what's going on in very different ways. Also, I chose them because so, so they both fit in this early era, and they're very interesting but also these are stories about lives, the subsequent lives after they served their assignment in Moscow or in the United States, become engaged in the Cold War in, in many ways. So Salisbury goes on to become kind of correspondent in Eastern Europe. He develops expertise in China. He's a super senior editor at the Times and very influential in the Times and kind of Times coverage and engagement with the Soviets. He goes to North Vietnam in 68 and becomes one of the first, if not the first person to challenge U.S. government policy. In Vietnam and kind of and everybody hates him again for that, like in the establishment. And so he was involved in Pentagon Papers and he kind of remained this very serious commentator on Russian and Soviet affairs throughout his life. Biglov remained. He returned uh, to the Soviet Union and he worked for TASS. He died pretty young, so he died in sixty-eight. But another interesting thing about Biglov is that there is a dynasty that followed him. So his son Spartak was uh, one of the people who founded Novosti Agency Press, which was central to Soviet engagement in the world after Stalin died. His grandson worked for TAS as well. And in the 80s, as the relationships were completely crumbling, again, came to work at the same bureau where his grandfather worked and actually met the son. So again, here's this family that's starting with, with Ivan and kind of going through three generations of people who are engaged in observing the United States, reporting the United States, analyzing the United States, and kind of telling about this to readers. And I think it's really powerful and really interesting in ways that these lives kind of were forever marked by, by the Cold War as a global event.
1: Yeah, and on the side of this, the Soviet correspondence, you know, in the book, he present just this incredible juxtaposition. Uh, and I'm thinking about the, the Soviet reporting of, of America during the 60s, right? This incredibly tumultuous period, where they're reporting on you know the anti-war rallies and civil rights protests and things like this but then yet at home simultaneously there's events like the Prague spring <laughs> and you present this incredible front page of Zvestia where it's on one hand on, on the front page it's you're praising the soviet you know brotherly help to czechoslovakia and on that same you know front cover from what i gathered it's also condemning the brutal reprisals against anti-war protesters, uh, anti-war protesters at the Democratic National Convention uh, in Chicago. So just kind of if you could touch on how these Soviet correspondents kind of manage this cognitive dissonance in their reporting, because uh, this juxtaposition you present, you know, through that August 29th issue, 1986 issue of Isvesti is is truly incredible. And just it almost provides a laugh because it's it's so incredible that they're covering these multiple events all at once as they're occurring at home and and abroad.
2: Thank you. This is a really interesting and and challenging question. So people are complicated beings, right? And we can accommodate easily internal contradictions. They were critical of what's happening in Prague in the same way that educated member of the Russian intelligentsia would be at the time. And we know kind of post factum that most of the Soviet political establishment who was of the same profile uh, so the younger kind of the younger generation within the soviet establishment who was the same profile as these journalists did not condone what happened and indeed several co- like two correspondents actually kind of lost their careers forever because they refused to report as they were told from prague i think people made all sorts of choices and found all sorts of ways to Resolve, you know, these conundrums, and to kind of live within and live with uh, these structures that demanded affirmations of loyalty. That where you had to kind of toe the line and report on particular events in a way that you were told. At the same time, they did have a lot of room for maneuver to pursue their to pursue their interests, to pursue their preferences. They were so experienced that they knew both how to write in such a way that it will not attract, you know, wrath and attention, and also kind of how to negotiate. Like if if you had to, how to negotiate with censors and with editors, and how to push for certain items, how to kind of choose your words in a particular way, etc. At the same time, I think they were genuinely as socialist people. They were kind of genuinely horrified by what they were seeing in the United States. And I personally find that the reporting on civil rights, for instance, on all the anti-war movement, you know, it's a lot of it resonates to the present. And some of their analysis of kind of race problems in the United States, you could use them today. That the reporting on anti-war movement was very sympathetic and kind of genuine and and again, kind of thoughtful. And I I think that these two things, they kind of don't, they're not mutually exclusive, right? So you don't have to love everything that happens in your country and hate everything that happens in the United States. And so these two things could actually kind of coexist at the same time. But also the crux of your question was, so how do you kind of, how do you live with this? as a professional and as a person and and I think that, you know, so having met them, many of them subsequently, you found strategies and you found ways and you resolved this case by case and you kind of found ways to navigate through these uh, complicated professional experiences.
0: Yeah, I have to say kind of exploring this relationship of journalism to truth uh, was a very interesting facet in your book of, you know, maneuvering what truth means to them what what truth seeking is, what truth telling is and how that's shaped. And especially with the self-censorship, that's something that's sort of been continuing in in Russia to this day and in other uh, post-Soviet spheres as well. I was fascinating to see that the, this sort of started taking shape during this time when when people did have to find a way to maneuver what they could say, what they couldn't say while still you know pursuing compelling stories and, and writing about the truth, speaking to power that sort of thing. So kind of to tie in, you know, with what you've researched in the Cold War, how do you see that reflected today with modern journalism?
2: I think the question of truth, you know, has always been acute. And I don't think even if we are kind of really kind of dealing, thinking a lot about this idea of post-truth, et cetera, et cetera, people have been preoccupied with what truth means, what truth in journalism means you know, for many years, including the Cold War. In Cold War, this idea of kind of truth and lies also came very closely entangled in national identities. So thinking about us was closely associated with thinking about truth. So us truth, them lies. And this binary where information becomes core to national identity and becomes associated with national identity on the one hand, and hostile information emanating from, from foreign power is considered as hostile as something that is kind of seeking to undermine who we are. This is certainly going very, very strong today within its own peculiarities, right? But not new as of itself. I think that what strikes me in Kind of this contemporary discourse and probably the last five years since kind of Russia again unfolded and things 2016 election is the kind of information that gets recognized as truth that does not necessarily pass you know the polls of uh, verification not even by you know western standards certainly not by western standards of juristic objectivity but also by many other standards and what kinds of things get printed and reported and said without any evidence to support them, or with very little evidence to support them, with a lot of circumstantial evidence and kind of circumstantial evidence that leads to other circumstantial evidence, and then treat it as truth and fact and become kind of disseminated thanks to social media. Both sides are kind of exhibiting this problem, right? So it's not an American thing, it's not a Russian thing. It happens on both sides. And also kind of again this idea that information is a threat. The foreign information is a threat. The truth is integral to kind of to who we are, to our values. These are really interesting parallels and that play out much stronger than they did, I guess. But maybe, you know, maybe they seem this way to us because that, you know, because we we live in the rhetoric, the rhetoric now is certainly much more combative and aggressive and virulent.
1: Yeah, the book is so rife with analogies to the present, right? It's almost, you know, you have to kind of snap yourself back into reading that you're reading about the past. And and, and that's what makes it such an amazing piece of, of, you know, scholarship. And so you quote, you know, long-time American correspondent, you know, Edmund Stevens, uh, after his years in the USSR, he writes that, you know, it's essential that the West learn to distinguish between the police state and the Soviet people. For the former are implacable foes, the latter, unless stupidly antagonized our potential friends and allies. And, and so as it relates to, you know, your, your previous statement, do you believe that the Western press, and this is kind of a pointed question, the Western press today is, is crossed into this kind of antagonistic territory in its coverage of Russia, you know, we're, we're so inundated daily with, you know, whether it was, you know, Russiagate before or the Solar Winds hack, you know, or justifiably about, you know, issues surrounding Navalny and him being imprisoned. Do you feel like they've crossed into that antagonistic space and do we need kind of a a new kind of thaw journalism to bring back that humanistic element to, to reporting on on russia
2: so i don't think the press crossed into antagonistic space alone and it's certainly that what you know upsets russians is not you know articles in the new york times or in some dodgy news media and also, like, I, I really like it that you brought this, this quote from Stevens on, on one, because it really shows you this like very dominant thinking that existed on both sides. Let's engage with the people, kind of forget the government. Let's talk to the people. The people are people like us. And I found this unique, like this voice at the time when he wrote this was unique because everybody around was saying, oh, you know. Russians are haters, it's going to be a new war, these communists. I mean, you just look at films from kind of now 1940s United States, right? Look at J. Edgar Hoover's speeches. And here comes this person and says, kind of again, in this kind of cacophony of voices, says, no, these are people. Let's engage with them as people. And even the Soviets, however, you know, stale ideological language they were using, they still kind of made the same point, separating the, 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 the regime from the people. The people are victims of capitalism. We need to kind of uh, extend the, friend of, friend, the hand of friendship to toilet masses and to minorities, etc. And that, again, happened at the very height of the Cold War. And I see much less of this now, and it kind of saddens me. I see much less of that realization that there are humans with shared concerns and shared interests on both sides, that it's important for us to engage as people to people and to understand what these people are about. And you hear these voices much less. And I'm thinking, you know, the coverage, say, of the pandemic, right, kind of the the coverage of Sputnik vaccine as a threat to American interests or kind of all, all these, there were publications kind of early on about how it's um, like Russia benefits and enjoys, you know, the the misfortunes of the Americans and the pandemic. And again, in Russia, there were these people who were, I don't remember the, the exact thing, but there were these like strange videos on TikTok of people kind of sending messages to Americans, which were kind of nasty and unpleasant, or accusing Americans of the virus, all sorts of kind of weird stuff. And the media could do so much more. To reignite this interest in people, to help people kind of relate to each other across the border. This is like a tough time, and nobody is helped by hating and thinking that you know these guys are against us and they're the enemies. The media can do much more, could do much more, and should probably do much more, but it doesn't. And uh, again, it's not the sole responsible actor in this, but it has a responsibility. And so earlier, earlier this year, I think it was this ad. I don't know if you guys have seen it, was this ad for a Russia correspondent for the New York Times that used the words Putin's Russia maybe five times over it. Oh, we're looking for somebody who could understand Putin's Russia. So the entire ad was about Putin and Putin's Russia and, and kind of did this whole framing of Russia as Putin's freedom. Again, not new, not particularly outrageous in, in, in what it's saying, but, but, but indicates policy, indicates an imagination. Or conceptualization of what the person who is stationed in Russia should be about. And, and again, this happens on both sides. that The press is not only going in this direction of building bridges and realizing shared concerns, but it's actually kind of augmenting the problem it makes it worse. <music>
1: And is that Putin's Russia, is that is that way of thinking and, and framing, you know, reporting on Russia, is that kind of the natural continuation of what you reference in the book of eternal Russia and Hendrik Smith? And it, it just seems, you know, this nation of 100 plus million people to begin to kind of boil them down to, right, there's our past or this absolutist past. Is, is that kind of a natural continuation? At least from my end, it, it seems like it.
2: Oh, absolutely and spot on. When I remember kind of thinking when it was um, a Sochi Olympics, so can't remember how long ago it was anymore. But so when Sochi Olympics were happening, only a lazy did not mention Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, Stalin, and Putin. In the same article, so effectively oh look, Putin is making Russia kind of great, and like and Potomkin Village, of course. So, uh, b- but it was it was absolutely remarkable to me that you discuss kind of Russian contemporary affairs, and you talk about this leader, and you are compelled to situate that leader in this continuum of repressive Russian rulers who transformed Russia and kind of you know, but were also but also were known by their repressive policies. And this article was kind of not this it was just a reporting strand, like one after another article, that were making this kind of claim, oh, kind of these are totalitarian methods, they only work, that's the only thing that works for Russia, that's the only way you can get Sochi ready for for hosting the Olympics, and like they did with uh, Stalin and Peter the Great and Ivan the Terrible. So, of course, this is, uh, and that proclivity also to think about Russia historically and to constantly kind of hark back to Russian history and Russian past and to explain Russian people by these very kind of generic references to Russian people's history is something that I find really unique to Russia. You know, I live in the United Kingdom, so every time, like, whenever the British talk about the French, they are not mentioning Robespierre, Louis Eighteenth, or the French Revolution. He's perfectly capable to report about Macron without evoking history. Same when people report about the United Kingdom, nobody kind of thinks about Queen Elizabeth I, and even, even when they talk about Queen Elizabeth II. But you you encounter this so often and these kind of like historical generalizations and generalizations about Russian national character, how it is supposedly suited or unsuited for particular political culture, etc. What are Russians suited for as people? And that happens again and again. And this is something that, again, not new, but I wanted to, to explore this through talking about this idea of eternal Russia in how correspondence reported about this because I saw it emerge, right? It wasn't there from the beginning and something that kind of developed later as an analytical perspective that also gained a lot of traction in uh, the academia and in U.S. politics.
1: Those who have been fortunate to travel and and you engage with more and more Russians, whether it's the academic space or private life, you, you just see how fundamentally absurd those type of comparisons are. But you know, how do we bridge this this kind of divide and kind of with the you know dispersion of media nowadays, from you know YouTube and TikTok all the way up until kind of you know the traditional sources of media like the New York Times you reference. Is there a new vehicle that can serve as a, a modern space bridge? And maybe you could touch on you know this this concept of the space bridge because I was unfamiliar with it. You know, I'm excited to go back and, and find these <laughs> these videos and these animated exchanges. So maybe first you could. Talk about kind of the space bridge and, and its relationship to Glasnost and Perestroika, And then also, you know, what, what you see moving forward uh, in the contemporary era, as far as maybe a potential vehicle to, to kind of bridge that gap or kind of do away with that monolithic thinking as it relates to coverage of, coverage of Russia.
2: Thank you for that. Space bridges are kind of cool. I grew up watching them. And I think that was the first time I saw Americans that were not President Reagan. I might be mistaken, but that's how I remember it. So, spacebridge started in uh, the nineteen eighties as an initiative between uh, satellite communication enthusiasts in the United States and in the Soviet Union, and as uh, very kind of consciously thought about this vehicle of citizen-to-citizen diplomacy. They really kind of gained momentum after Gorbachev came to power and introduced his policy of Glasnost, which was opening the Soviet Union, kind of more media reforms talking about things um, more openly and uh, candidly discussing the nation's problems. Outreach to foreign countries was important in Gorbachev's kind of overall setup. And so he and his team really got behind the Space Bridge as a project. So the Space Bridge featured a meeting between Soviet and American people linked via satellite link. So there would be Soviets in the Soviet studio, Americans in an American studio. And they would see each other on screen. And have an unscripted conversation about their lives, moderated by one Soviet and one American host. There were several, so the most famous space bridges are the Posner Donahue. So the uh, moderated by Vladimir Posner and Phil Donahue, again really iconic, broadcast to hundreds of millions strong audience in the Soviet Union. I looked at the figures once. So if you were watching Soviet television. It had an approximate audience of 150 million people or 250 million people. That's a lot. And they were broadcast at least twice. A lot of people would have seen them. Much smaller figures in the United States for a set of reasons. And they were, for Soviet people, they were really influential and allowed them to imagine Americans as kind of proper flesh and blood and to see... Americans and Soviets talk about particular things and disagree. And throughout the space, we just part- kind of issues that were, you know, considered taboo before were raised, for example, uh, the dissident movement, the downing of Korean Lions airline, etc. So that was really innovative. But again, one of, the, one of the most innovative things about it is that you could see real Americans and real Soviets talk to each other in, uh, in prime time. There is an, There had been an excellent podcast made about this by Radiotopia, like a series, and they found tons of really precious stuff. And I highly recommend Julia Barton, who is the producer of that. It's her project of love. And so it's a really, good, it's a really, really good podcast series for people who want to know more about the Space Bridge. And then you ask, so how, what, can, what can be like this modern Space Bridge, right? Uh, how can we get to know people? For instance, you can follow uh, 20 random Russians on Twitter. Just random Russians who tweet in English. Just, they don't have to be famous. They don't have to be important or particularly smart. Just follow them on Twitter. and See what, what, what their life is like. Follow some random Russians on Facebook. Again, do the same. And this is, you know, and that's available, kind of if you read Russian, then you can do much more. But as a starters, you can, you can do that. And see what it's like. Will you get, you know, a wholesome, in-depth knowledge of what Russian society is like at the moment? No. But what you get is like what this person, you know, is having for coffee, they're having for, for lunch, what kind of day they have, what, what is that they're thinking and tweeting about on that day. You can join various if you if you are into kind of the protest stuff and the political opposition stuff, so you can join kind of the various telegram channels and actually not kind of read what is synthesized to you by the various news services, but see by follow the conversation and the developments in real life. I have the subscription for for stuff in, in Belarus, for instance. This is where I get my my news. You can then comment in a friendly way on that Russian person's tweet, and lo and behold. Some random Russian might follow you and learn about your life and discover that you're not some kind of evil American who, you know, inspires to kill him and bring uh, terrible liberal values into the heart of uh, Moscow, but you get a nice guy just like him. There's also a lot of like proper great reporting done on both sides, right? So this is not to say that journalism is terrible. There are many excellent journalists you can by applying, you know, critical... Curriculum thinking and kind of just find out journalists that make more sense, that are more responsible, and follow them and kind of look up their work and make sure that you're following their work from your own. You can follow Russian media if you read the language, or you can follow English language Russian media like Medusa. And again, see the conversation looks completely different. Russia looks completely different when you look at it kind of from that perspective. And so we are actually super fortunate. You know, kind of social media has uh, many issues, but we are super fortunate to live in a world of social media where we can just find out what it's like. You know, my journalists in the book that worked really hard to get at the average person. Right. So there was a lot kind of people in New York and Washington give us like news about the average person. Go and talk to the average person. What's the average person like? And and getting at the average person was really, really hard. They worked super hard to this to, to get there. We don't have to. We just can click a few buttons and get at your average person and, you know, hundreds of them if you want to.
0: I, I love this idea of, like, open source cultural exchange. Like, it really is all out there. You just have to go go on social media, go online, and it's it's right there, right at your fingertips. At, at the same time, you know, I, I love this idea. It's it, There's definitely, you know, room to grow in there, but people need to be motivated. And I feel like that almost ties right back into journalism in that we do need more, you know, on the ground reporting to motivate people to learn more and want to learn more and to connect with these people. When you have, you know, articles that are Putin's Russia and and all this negative press, which is often warranted. But at the same time, if that's the only thing you're reading, then you don't want to connect with that kind of culture. There's no motivation there. And there's almost so much value in more fluff pieces, more um, glossy magazines that they used to have during the Cold War era, like Soviet life, that got people more interested on a just a very basic level of just wanting to learn more. I hope we see more of that eventually, even as, you know, relations are as worse as they've ever been. There's so much room to do more, less at the top national level and more at that people to people exchange.
2: You know, this project and kind of brought me into contact with a bunch of colleagues and people. And just when people hear what I do, they kind of randomly tell me these stories about a whole bunch of Americans who just were interested in, in Russia, you know, in, in the 80s. So people kind of my age or older, because it'll be like in the 80s when it was vilified and terrible and there was a threat of nuclear war, and they were like, Oh, I'm gonna take Russian at school. I'm gonna go to Moscow, just because I'm really interested in that. So I'm I kind of I'm Yes, we live in a culture, kind of, yes, the mainstream culture does not encourage that kind of effort to engage, but I'm sure, sure, sure that people who are interested and are doing this and will be doing this in all sorts of ways. I also don't want to hold like the journalists as, you know, the sole responsible for that. There is kind of a much larger cultural environment and context that is responsible for this, and that is political leaders and the particular rhetoric that political leaders take, particular political actions, I mean, that are then got into... And, and, and kind of both sides are guilty of this. I think, you know, having done this project, there's a lot of responsibility with the editors who, okay, and green light less responsible items because of clickbait, because of, you know, 24 hours news cycle not even 24 hours in your cycle, like a 30-minute new cycle. So so there are a lot of other things happening that facilitate less responsible reporting. And and also, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's a great point that it also kind of, the more you have of of the bad stuff, the less inclined you are to seek the good stuff. And the harder it is to speak out and to produce something that is, you know, interesting and new and, and good and valuable. But we have to be optimistic. I'm optimistic because like, there's no other way around, right? Kind of, if not, then what? I have seen, kind of doing this research, I have seen Soviet-American relations looking really bleak, people on the ground really scared of each other, thinking about each other in very kind of scared, scary terms. And I have seen this improve and kind of in cycles, and then it would kind of go down and it will go up again. So uh, I'm hopeful that that this is like another one of these dips that we will come out of it to someplace nice and exciting.
0: Yeah, who knows? Maybe diplomacy through TikTok is, is our future. And I'm perfectly OK with that. Yeah, don't on Instagram. <laughs> Speaking of the future and looking ahead, uh, we did want to ask you a little bit about what you're currently working on. Uh, anything else to look out for from you in the coming uh, few months? So nothing in the coming months. We all felt the tolls of this year and
2: supporting my students in the way they needed and supporting my five-year-old son in his homeschooling. That was uh, that was a year hands full. So, but I kind of it also was an amazing year, right? I got to host my students in the spare room on a weekly basis. I got to spend time with my family. What I am really thinking about, I'm really kind of interested in. Is this, is this period of the 80s and the 90s. I'm very interested in glassness as a concept. I'm very interested how something that sets as this like very, very model initiative to liberalize the media a little bit to criticize, you know, the establishment here and there becomes this kind of giant thing, this avalanche of, of, of information, revelations, censorship abolished kind of within two years. And also, very interestingly, Soviet, Soviet people for the first time encountering information completely unmitigated and completely uncensored and a lot of it. So I'm very interested in how this happens, what happens, What changes as a result and kind of what are the long term effects of this period? So in the 90s and and maybe to this day, so how did glassness kind of shape the Soviet Union? I know that, for instance, journalistic values have changed a great deal. And now kind of when you hear Russian journalists speak, they speak with the values of Western press. Uh, So they also talk about objectivity and kind of careful observation and analysis versus facts. So these are very interesting things. And I want to know kind of when did they start? How did Glassness change Soviet Union's self-understanding in the world? Relations with foreign countries. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff there when, you know, everything. And that's a big project that I'd be really interested in working on. And I'm kind of thinking about what's the best way to do this. But now, like yourselves, I'm just, you know, barred from archives. So all I can do is watch old clips on
1: uh, YouTube instead. It wasn't evident from kind of my tone. I thoroughly enjoyed Cold War correspondence. I couldn't recommend it enough. It really was that great too. It, it really was. It was so easily readable, you know, but also informative, which is kind of this great problem in academia, right? Um, and, you know, my only problem was I, I thought I gave myself, yeah, I finished it too early. So I kind of had to go back and revisit it just because uh, of my personal interest. So again, uh, Thank you so much.
2: Kind of, I worked forever on making it readable. It was like a very concentrated effort to not publish another book where you can't finish the sentence because you are too bored. <laughs> I felt like kind of at some point I was, I remember I was thinking, I was writing something and I said, well, they wrote about it so much better. Like, because they are such good writers. And so, how can I tell this story in a way that it's like, I can, my story can't be boring? With their interesting stories, so how do I tell my stories about them in a way that kind of does justice to, to the writing and their storytelling? It, and so it's really heartening when, especially, kind of the students uh, in Moscow as well, uh, kind of said like, "Oh, that's like that really reads well." I'm like, "Oh
1: yes, thank you." So thank you so much. I, I hope we can we can all have a better year, and maybe you can take your son to a Tottenham game, blow off a little steam <laughs> after being in the apartment. I'm sure for, for the past so many months. So-
2: thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you both. It was an absolute pleasure. It is a huge huge privilege to be read in this way and to be questioned in in this way. That is kind of thoughtful. You guys have new questions. These are not colleagues ask. Thanks guys, and thank you for being such generous and thoughtful. Readers of
1: my book, it really means the world. The Slavic
0: Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the Conversations Changing the World, brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests, and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at SlavXradio.com. Thank you. In honor of Tom Rehnquist, I want to do it like Tom Rehnquist style. (laughs) Welcome to the Slavic Connection. I'm Tom Rehnquist.
1: Houston, we have a problem.